Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, two of the 2017 Man Booker longlisted novels in Mosin Hammond's Exit West and then Reservoir 13 by John McGregor. Mosin Hamid writes regularly for the New York Times, The Guardian and the New York Review of Books and is the author of the book of shortlisted, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, Moth Smoke, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia and Discontent and Its Civilizations. He was born in Lahore, has lived in the USA and London in between and is back living in Lahore now. And the latest book we're going to talk about is Exit West, which was shortlisted for the 2017 Man Booker Prize. Mosin, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. How would you describe Exit West? Well, it is a love story. It is a novel about migration. It's a imagining of what our world could look like uh, at some point in the future when people can live wherever they like. It's uh, a political novel and it deals with issues that uh, we might call spiritual, even if we don't believe necessarily in the spirit. Okay, we're going to come to the migration part of the book later on. But first of all, let's talk about our two main characters, Saeed and Nadia. Tell us who Saeed is, first of all. Saeed is a young man who uh, lives with his parents in an unnamed city um, that is uh, beginning now to descend into a kind of civil war. And he's a, a gentle person. He is uh, working... Um, at a small advertising company and his normal life is in the process of collapsing and around this time uh, he encounters a young woman named Nadia. And I want to say something about, before we move on to Nadia, tell me something about Saeed's parents as well because they figure strongly in the book and they have this amazing bond. So Saeed is very close to his parents. He lives at home as uh, most people who are unmarried in his city do and uh, his parents are his friends. He is somebody who regards his childhood and upbringing as not just a place that he has been or a time that he has been in, but as a kind of destination. He would like to have something like that in the future. Uh, he is also uh, somebody who is spiritually minded. He Prayer has meaning for him. He uh, is not averse to the occasional uh, spliff or psychedelic mushroom, but at the same time finds it kind of solace through prayer and uh, to the traditions of his parents. Um, now, Nadia, she's perhaps surprisingly an independent young woman. Well, she is certainly an independent young woman. Um, that shouldn't necessarily be surprising. She is somebody who has left her family home. 
after university, she decided that she was not going to get married and instead uh, start a job and uh, go and live by herself. And that caused a terrible rupture with her family. She is somebody who, unlike Saith, does not regard her childhood and past with a particular affection and gazes resolutely into a future where she can be the person she wants to be and live the way she wants to live. What that is, she doesn't fully know uh, at the outset of the novel. Uh, she uh, dresses quite conservatively in a black covering, which uh, leads, say, initially to suspect that she's very religiously minded, but uh, it turns out that her reasons for that are not particularly religious. She's not someone given to religion much at all, but rather uh, as a kind of way to ward off male attention in a city where being a single woman is very difficult. And you portray how, I said she's surprisingly independent because I was more thinking about how then the novel develops in that you portray how her independence becomes more and more difficult as the situation in the city deteriorates. Yes, um, you know, she depends on a certain kind of functioning of law and order, etc. to live this life as an independent woman with her own flat. But when uh, law and order begins to disintegrate and the city descends into civil war, then the loyalties of clan and family and uh, the sort of older tribal loyalties that keep people safe are not available to her. And she struggles to continue to live independently. It certainly is no longer a safe city in which a young woman can live independently. And she tries to find a way to do so. You mentioned that they live in an unnamed city. Now, as we go through the book, they're going to move. They first move to Greece, then to London, and then to the US. Um, all these places are named. Why are they from an unnamed city? Well, the city they begin in is unnamed for a number of different reasons. I used Lahore, the city in Pakistan where I live, as the starting point for that city. Um, the city we encounter in Chapter 1, when there's only very rarely uh, some violence and the distant fighting in some remote provinces is a bit more like what life in Lahore is today. But uh, then I removed a lot of details that made it specific to Lahore. The city is only uh, quite sparsely described. And uh, and that opens it up in a way for the reader to imagine it as their own city or as the city of their parents or um, a city they've seen in the news or that their lover comes from or somebody they're friends with comes from. And I wanted the reader to be able to appropriate the city, uh, to put it on top of something that they have a feeling for. But also, I just didn't have the heart to subject Lahore, even in fiction, to the fate that this city uh, undergoes. Not because that fate is inconceivable, but because, frighteningly, it is conceivable. Uh, I think, uh, and I hope, that Lahore will not have such terrible circumstances happen to it. But at the same time, I imagine that people who live in Sarajevo or Damascus or Aleppo or Baghdad also never imagined that these things would happen in their city. We're obviously not going to be talking about Lahore as the city. This is a, not only a fictionalised, unnamed city, but even if it was Lahore, it's a fictionalised version of it. And certainly one, the book is set to begin with, possibly, but certainly as we go on in the future as well. It's, it's, this is not a, a story of the past, but you live in Lahore now. Is there anything like this? At all? Is there any taste of what you describe that these guys go through? Yes, well, as you say, the, the novel is set in the future, but it's set in the future as in the day after tomorrow. Uh, it's not a distant future, really. Um, it's the future just around the corner. And as far as Lahore is concerned, you know, that I have a kind of recurring horror, uh, sort of waking nightmare that something like this could await in the future. As I said, I don't think it will, but Lahore today is a city where every so often there is a terrorist attack, um, every so often there is an assassination, and most people will know somebody who knows somebody who has been affected. 
But then, of course, there are cities where uh, you know somebody yourself who's been affected, and everybody will know somebody who's been affected. Well, we could talk about London. We? Well, I think London is, <laughs> London is, you know, if Lahore is two degrees of separation from violence uh, for most of the people who live in Lahore, London perhaps is three. And the really violent cities of the world are, are one, or in fact, one might oneself have experienced it. And so, you know, Lahore is a place where these sorts of incidents happen at a degree more common than London. But yet, at a pace where it's still possible for most people to live a normal life and pretend that uh, this stuff uh, won't affect them. Yeah, and I was I was going to get onto it. I was struck by how you you know described that the idea that you know this city is falling apart. The situation just gets worse and worse and worse. You know, to the extent that there are headless corpses hanging in the street, and yet the reality for most people is getting their heads down and just wanting to get on with their lives. Obviously, surviving. But at the same time, surviving is not necessarily not being killed by the militants. It's, it's eating and going to work. Well, I think that until the city really collapses into full-blown civil war and normal life becomes impossible and offices shut and jobs disappear and the whole thing um, becomes a kind of you know, scrabbling through the rubble uh, to find subsistence, until it reaches that point, people are trying to cling to normalcy. And in my experience, that's what people do, that we think that in places where terrible things are going on, people must be just thinking about those terrible things all the time. But in my experience, what tends to happen is the opposite. People tend to avert their gaze from the horrors. And we know, for example, even here where you and I are sitting right now in London, uh, just a couple of generations ago, there was a terrible bombardment of the city, the Blitz in the Second World War, and bombs were falling in numerous buildings, particularly here towards the sort of eastern side of London or, or the central to eastern side of London, um, much of the new construction that we see is because older buildings were blown up. And in that time and the literature of that time, we see people writing and they're still going to work and they're trying to get on with it. And it's the same, I think, in Lahore and it's the same in, say, the Nadia city, which is that people avert their gaze from the violence and desperately cling to the possibility of normalcy as if clinging to it will make it happen. And so, in a sense, that's one thing that's always struck me as a difference in accounts that one reads of people who've lived in places and journalists who cover places. The journalists will focus on um, the abnormality uh, and the citizens will tend to desperately keep their gaze on the normality to the extent it's possible. But then, of course, normality is ripped apart by the proximity of terrible events. And there are things that happen in this book which we won't talk about because they're, they're sort of major plot points of the story... But there's a point where a cousin of Nadia's is killed in a, a terrible truck bombing. Um, and particularly, I wanted to talk about the scene where she goes to the bank to withdraw money from the bank. And there are hundreds of people trying to trying to get their money out of the bank. And what happens? Yes, well, so Nadia is there in a crowd trying to get her money out of the bank. And nobody's sure if the banking system still works or how much money you can take out. And as she's standing there, you know, uh, she's sort of pinned in the crowd. And as she's pinned in the crowd, not able really to move, she's... Uh, quite, uh, you know, horribly and uh, uh, mercilessly groped. And, you know, this is a, the kind of, of violence that people uh, experience in these situations. Of course, not only in these situations. We, we know increasingly that even in the most liberal environments of, of Hollywood, um, all kinds of horrors are uh, meted out in particular to young women uh, and also sometimes to young men. 
But in situations like where Nadia finds herself, where really she is unprotected and there's a mass of people, uh, there's a great vulnerability. And, and so she uh, is confronted with this very difficult situation where on the one hand, she wishes to depend on no one. And on the other hand, she worries for her physical safety as a woman in particular, uh, as a human being, first of all, because it's dangerous for anyone, but as a woman in particular in this sort of environment. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mosin Hamid. We're talking about his latest novel, which is Exit West. And Mosin, we've mentioned that this is a story of migration as well. And migration is a, a very newsworthy thing at the moment. Obviously it always has been, but particularly at the moment. And yet most of the images we see tend to be about the terrible journey. They might be unseaworthy boats, people smuggling... There's none of that in this book. You've made a decision to not feature that part of the journey. Tell me why. I don't mean to uh, in any way detract from or diminish the horrors and occasionally or frequently, too frequently, uh, deadly nature of these terrible journeys that people are forced to make across the Mediterranean in unseaworthy boats or uh, underneath the barbed wire on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, these journeys are occurring and do occur and, uh, and are important. But it seems to me that so much of our attention is focused on these journeys and too little on the human beings who are making them. And those human beings mostly are not making these journeys. Most of their lives is what made you leave the place you were and what happened in a new place. And by focusing on the journey, we, those of us who have not crossed the Mediterranean on a small boat, um, we imagine that these people are different from us. They become a kind of other I haven't done these things. This is not the same kind of person as me. But by removing the journey, we're just left with this sentiment of, of leaving a home and, and, and entering a new home. And that's something everyone has participated in. Uh, whether you've moved from one city to a different college town or simply from the home of your parents to your own home. Uh, each of us has, has experienced, likely experienced, uh, that kind of physical uh, migration. And so I hope that by removing that journey, we remove the false separation that we imagine exists between us and, and geographic migrants and refugees. I don't think there is such a, a difference, actually. And, and also um, that we begin to open up the possibility of examining the migrations in all of our lives, even those of us who have you know, been born and raised in the same uh, place. So then the central image in this book of how these migrations take place is through a door. Tell us about that image and where that comes from. Well, the experience of migration in this novel um, occurs, as you say, by means of these doors. The novel uh, abides by the premises of, of uh, consensus reality broadly defined and uh, the laws of physics as we understand them, uh, with one minor exception, which is the existence of these doors. And these doors are black, rectangular, opaque spaces. They appear unexpectedly. Uh, you might perhaps be in your flat and the door that formerly led to your bathroom now is a black rectangle. If you push yourself through this opaque space, you are no longer in London, but in Kinshasa or Rio de Janeiro or Bangkok. And people begin to proceed to these doors, initially a trickle and eventually billions of people in the next 
several centuries of human migration occur within a year or two. Now, where these doors come from, I think, you know, from, I guess, a couple of different sources. Uh, on the one hand, uh, certainly they come from uh, children's literature, and in particular, I, I was struck after having written them by the realization that, uh, that one of my favorite children's books, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, had found itself uh, present in this novel by virtue of this magical transportation system. I hadn't thought of that book when writing the uh, novel, but oftentimes we, are, we don't consider how we are influenced. Mm-hmm. I think children's literature so often has this device of magically going from one place to another. But also, the more sort of proximate trigger for this imagining, uh, the one that I was aware of, was uh, the little black rectangle that we each uh, carry with us all the time in our pockets or our handbags. We each have this black rectangle, which is the screen of our phones when it's uh, uh, asleep. And uh, that screen uh, beckons forth our consciousness uh, and decouples it from the geographic location of our body so that we might simply be looking at our best friend's pictures from their honeymoon in uh, Tahiti or uh, south of France, or we might be uh, reading a news article from Tokyo or from Mexico City, or we might be considering the surface of Mars and whether it could be habitable one day, or we could venture forth into the history of Westeros and the kinds of characters who live there. We go forth into worlds that are remote from our own in time, in geography, and sometimes into places that have never existed and never will, imaginary places. And we're doing this constantly. And it seems to me that one of the functions of technology is to obliterate geographic distance. Uh, it has been happening for a very long time with the steam engine giving rise to you know, the automobile and trains, and, and we have aircraft. You know, uh, the reason why we have aircraft is, is because people wanted to fly. And the reason why we have these little black rectangles in our pockets is because we want our consciousness to instantaneously transport anywhere we choose it to be. And the novel just takes this technological trend one step further and imagines what if our bodies could move as easily also. And of course that appears in the novel in a couple of ways as well, that while they're still in the city, first of all, things start happening like, you know, the water gets cut off, the electricity gets cut off, those sort of essential services. And of course, at some point, the internet gets cut off and suddenly they have trouble communicating via the mobile phones. But also there's this discussion when you talk about the black rectangle as you know, a parallel to the doors. There's also a discussion about, oh, well, we can't take the overland route because the borders are closed and things like that. So that escape into the mobile phone has also been cut off. Yes, and I think, you know, that uh, in Lahore, sometimes it happens that there will be a big terrorist threat and they turn off uh, internet connectivity, certainly to phones and sometimes even to one's uh, uh, wired internet connections. And it's a very disconcerting thing. We have, in you know, the 21st century, become so accustomed to be a, being able to plug into the hive mind of the internet and to being able to access our friends and, and knowledge generally uh, through these devices, that when what is cut off, it is far more jarring than a short-term suspension of electricity, which uh, sometimes I don't even notice, or a cut-off of water, which is definitely annoying when it lasts for a few hours, but uh, isn't life-threatening unless it becomes much longer than that. But uh, every minute, an hour that passes with the phone service cut off, the internet connection cut off, is a minute or hour that feels like having retreated to a previous moment in history. And, And one begins to feel that even one's relationships with other people are being compromised by this uh, by this interruption. We mentioned that there's no actual 
narrative of travel in itself in the book. But what we do get, and what I liked was the sort of replicated the dislocation that we get from travel, the jet lag and everything, because when they go through the doors, they sort of have to, at the other side, fight their way through and then sit down because they're tired. And there's there's definitely some physical aspect to travelling through these portals. Yeah, I imagined, and in the novel it's described as, as both like a birth and a death, you know, that there's some kind of extinguishing when you enter mm-hmm. this door. And, and of course, there's some kind of, you know, creation uh, when you exit it. Um, there's the, the doors are a visceral experience and they are very unsettling um, as our own birth has been as our own death surely will be and so uh, and migration is also like that you know when we migrate in some ways we are being born in some ways we're also dying and the novel tries to um, be very true to the emotional reality of that Uh, there's a line in the novel where when they're leaving now, at the end, say they're reflecting upon what it means to leave their loved ones behind. And uh, the line of the novel is that when we migrate, we murder from our lives those we leave behind. And some people have said, oh, well, isn't that too strong or isn't that uh, unfair? And I don't think that it is. I think that, you know, when I consider, for example, if I were to leave Pakistan every day, my parents play with my children. So the grandchildren and grandparents get together and hang out. And this is a wonderful thing. And if we were to move far away and this was to happen for one week a year, there is an emotional violence to all parties involved in that, which doesn't mean that one shouldn't do it. It just means that one should be aware of this uh, in two senses. One should be aware when people come from another country and one imagines that, oh, well, what have they done for this country? What price have they paid? We should remember that the price they've paid is everything. They've lost everyone they love. They've lost all of the things they're familiar with. And that's an incredible price. But also that out of that trauma, if it is not acknowledged, it has the potential to echo across generations, that it's passed on from parents to children and children to their children, this horrible uh, emotional violence that has occurred. It needs to be dealt with and reckoned with and accepted and uh, to the extent it can be uh, overcome. But, uh, but we, we pretend that it doesn't exist and, and the echoes of that are all around us. You've already mentioned the idea, the theme in the book of migration, that we're all migrants. And I do want to look at a couple of aspects of that. So first, very literally, all human beings are migrants. Part of this book is set in the United States, a place obviously where I mean, there are indeed characters in the book, some of whom are, you know, displaced. And I was going to say natives, but that isn't even really true, of course, because those people are also once upon a time migrants. But people that have been displaced by their a later form of migrant, also the ancestors of stolen people from other lands as well, or the people that make up this country that is now accepting these new migrants. As you said, human beings, we're all migrants. Well, you know, we're migrants in many different senses. So on the one hand, we are migrants in the sense that Homo sapiens did not evolve in Pakistan or uh, you know, the British Isles or the North American continent. Homo sapiens evolved in, uh, in the Rift Valley in Africa, and everybody... Uh, has ancestors who have left that place. Even those who live in that place today have ancestors who left and came back. It's not that people just sort of stayed. Everyone is descended from migrants. And then in our own lives, each of us experiences a migration through time. Uh, If you take, for example, an 80-year-old woman who lives around the corner from where we're having our conversation in London, imagine that she lives in the same house that she's lived in her entire life. Uh, when she was born, London was a very, very different place. And in her childhood, there was war. And her teens, there was enormous deprivation and rationing. And uh, she went to the swinging 60s. She saw the 70s. And 
Now, today, she steps out into uh, the streets of London and, um, and she steps into a foreign country. People are dressed differently, they speak differently, they look different. They are remarkably different from the London that she was familiar with. Uh, she has become foreign where she lives. And, uh, and beyond that, by becoming older, she has changed. When she was 20, she perhaps stepped out of her flat and many people looked at her as she walked down the street and acknowledged her or uh, smiled at her. And now perhaps she steps out and she's invisible to people because so often uh, elderly people are ignored in our society and certainly they don't you know, sort of command the same kind of gaze, uh, aren't coveted uh, in the way that a young woman walking down the street perhaps could be, at least not as often. And so everything has changed for this woman. Now, in that sense, she is a migrant too. By not allowing ourselves to acknowledge and feel for people who are geographic migrants, I think we also foreclose uh, an avenue of feeling and compassion for people who have not geographically migrated but feel like they've become foreigners in their own countries. And that is also dangerous because that has echoes that, that also pass from generation to generation. And you know, if we simply say that someone who's feeling that they are uh, migrating without moving is immediately uh, sort of hateful, chauvinist or xenophobe or um, sort of racist, we have failed to see the similarity of their pain and the pain of the geographic migrant, that actually we're not talking about two different groups in conflict with each other. In fact, we are seeing two groups that have a remarkably similar emotional trauma and could indeed see in each other natural sources of sympathy. Uh, but instead, we've framed the conversation in such a way that one is a migrant, the other is not. And so we imagine that these two are, are inherently in conflict. And of course, another theme of the book would be, if I can say, the migration of a relationship, the change in the dynamics of a relationship over a period of time. And of course, we probably, again, don't want to say too much about the relationship of Said and Nadia. But again, looking back to this, a very touching portrayal of the change in over years in the relationship again of Said's parents. Perhaps you'd say something about that. Yes, well, the novel in many ways is a love story about transience because it seems to me that it's very important to confront the notion that everything in human experience is transient. Everything changes and everything is lost to us. And yet it is possible to experience beauty and goodness and wonder and optimism despite this and perhaps even because of this. And so it is a love story about loss but a love story that is um, hopefully also beautiful uh, and about achieving a kind of tenderness and connection. It's a story about a first love, uh, say the Nadia's story. And when we say a story is a story about a first love, we usually use that term because it implies that perhaps there will later be a second and third love. Otherwise, we would just say it's a story about a love. But I wanted to investigate you know, this kind of a love story because so many of us in our lives will have loves which eventually, where we eventually parted uh, ways. Uh, and of course, every human being eventually parts ways from everybody they love because, you know, death comes for us at some point. And so, you know, is it possible to find something uh, powerful out of this? I think actually it is that, that what we can find out of confronting transience is a kind of deeper source of meaning than we can by denying it. Uh, right now, the illusion that we will be young forever or that our countries will be the way they are today forever uh, is being uh, sort of effortlessly propagated, although it's completely false. It always has been false, and we should know that it's false. And so uh, in that sense, even love stories, to the extent that they are sort of about a timeless and eternal fixity, um, can contribute to that 
false uh, sense of permanence. And of course, when we're in that relationship, that long-term love, it feels inevitable. But of course, I mean, we could say would Side and Nadia even be together if the situation wasn't as it was in their city? We, we, we will never know. But yes, Said and Nadia basically are quite different. And opposites do attract. But, uh, but partly, you know, dramatic circumstances create dramatic relationships. Uh, you know, when Humphrey Bogart uh, and Ingrid Bergman come together in Casablanca, it's against the backdrop of the Second World War. You know, had they come together uh, in that bar for the first time, who knows if they would have really even uh, had a connection with each other. And similarly, if you're on holiday, you know, in Paris, uh, and you meet somebody else from far away, and you have a week together, you have an amazing love story, uh, you think, oh my goodness, we're soulmates, we're meant to be together. But if you take the same two people, and you thrust them into a small studio flat, and say, you know, you have to live here together for the next 50 years, good luck. Uh, soon it becomes, you know, you didn't take out the garbage and the, the, the toilet roll finished and you didn't replace it. And the mundane toxicity of uh, over-familiarity and, and insufficient privacy begins to take hold. And for, say, the Nadia too, their relationship changes as it moves from a city which is tearing everybody apart to the confines of uh, migrant camps where they are thrust in with absolutely no uh, uh, privacy whatsoever. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mosin Hamid. We're talking about his latest novel, Exit West. And Mosin, the later parts of this story, which we won't go into any detail of the story because we don't want to give anything away. However, it's a, I guess, speculative fiction about, in the book, this sudden migration of billions of people that happens, you know, in the blink of an eye. Suddenly this is going on. Of course, we live in a world where... There are wars, the climate is changing, resources are running out, all those three things are linked together. This is the future, what you're talking about here. It just might be a few more years down the line. As an author, do you feel like this is the sort of thing you should be discussing? I mean, do you feel some sort of responsibility to do that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's there's many reasons why human society has art. But one of those reasons is that there is a value to imagining what could be uh, unencumbered by the constraints of what has been and what is. And when we think about migration, I do think that we're going to see incredible levels of migration because um, as the climate changes and sea levels rise and uh, previously fertile areas become arid and etc., um, people are going to move. They always have, and why would we seem to stop moving now? And so this will come. Yet we characterize this with a sense of utter panic, and terror, you know, what will we do? How will we uh, survive? That, I think, is what it's interesting to imagine an alternative future to. What if the migration apocalypse occurs and it's not particularly apocalyptic? Uh, and I think it needn't be because, you know, the only thing that is changing is not the number of people who wish to migrate. Many things are changing. You know, one of the things which is changing is that our sense of equality is broadening. You know, we uh, at one point imagined that men and women weren't equal, and now we don't do that. And we imagined that uh, people with light and dark skin were unequal, and now we don't do that. And gay and straight people, and religious people, and atheists, and on and on. Our sense of what is equal has expanded. And so I don't think we're that far off, maybe a few generations, maybe less, from understanding that you know a, a young child born in Manchester and a young child born in Mogadishu are equal and have equal right to live in a place which is prosperous and safe. And so, and I think as these equalities expand, each reinforces the other. So the equality of gay and straight people it reinforces the equality of men and women. Um, religious equality uh, reinforces the equality of uh, you know people of different uh, skin colors. Um, and I think, you know, if we were to allow ourselves to accept the equality of people regardless of where they're born, all of these equalities would be strengthened. And if they are strengthened, I think new things become possible. For example, we are seeing now we're giving birth to human beings are giving birth to uh, machines that can learn. And these machines would be capable of doing many things better than we can. And as a consequence, we're likely to see all kinds of surpluses created and all kinds of jobs destroyed. If in a world that is more equal we are able to take these surpluses and, you know, uh, allocate them to humanity, you know, you might find that we're living in a world that looks quite a bit like heaven. Alternatively, if we are unable to recognize our equality and these surpluses uh, accrue to a few trillionaires in California, we're going to be living in a dystopic hell. So I think that actually migration offers us, accepting migration offers us an opportunity. It isn't simply a sacrifice we must make for our principles, but rather it is potentially a direction to a world that is more equal and better for our own children and grandchildren because that world will be better able to move beyond thinking that's constrained by nations to tackle problems like climate change and uh, technological change and migration. And I suspect in the end, a world like that is a world where 
far fewer people will feel the need to migrate in the first place. Overlaid in this story is a sort of story of the evolution of of automation in terms of drones. To begin with, there's this city that's under attack and there's these invisible drones overhead that are dealing sudden death and then later on, smaller drones are there as sort of omnipresent surveillance. Later on again, they just become almost unnoticeable, a little hummingbird drone that, say, Nadia just bat away. They've just become a, a fact of life, I guess. Well, they have. I mean, I think what has happened is, almost without us knowing it, we have adopted a kind of maximalist approach to technology, where I suppose this is driven by, you know, our countries being in competition with one another. So every country feels it must deploy as much technology as possible, as quickly as possible, because if it doesn't, the country that does will soon have military superiority. Um, But as we hook up everything from our baby monitors to our fridges, you know, to our children's homework systems, to our militaries, to uh, these sorts of networked devices, be they drones or our phones, enormous changes are coming into existence. And and say that now they are living in a world where uh, there are drones, sort of various kinds of drones uh, everywhere. But I think that we already live in a world which is like that to a degree we don't fully comprehend because we imagine that technology, when given a physical form that approximates a person or an animal, is an entity, like a drone. But a CCTV camera which to us feels more like, a, like an object, like, uh, uh, like an appliance, is actually not so meaningfully different from a drone, and they are everywhere in London. And, uh, and beyond that, you know, the, the nature of what a drone is, sort of this autonomous thing, um, exists in the algorithms that can sift through our social media profiles and determine whether we are gay or whether we are uh, supporters of the KKK or whether we are uh, likelihood to drive unsafely. And uh, this stuff is all around us. So what in the novel, what I've tried to do is to sort of make manifest the emotions around it. Because often we talk about technology, we describe technology in technology's terms. I find that next to useless. It's partly why I avoid names in my books. Uh, the only two characters with names in this novel are Said and Nadia. Mm-hmm. And their city is nameless initially as well. I find that when you don't use the names, uh, the proper names that have been given to something, you kind of avoid a, a branding language which has been constructed for you, which constrains your thought. When you have to describe things without using these proper names, you have to figure out what it means. And I think as far as technology is concerned, it's very worthwhile to do that because it has enormous emotional implications for us. And the biggest question of all, which is how do we regulate this stuff? is not being answered because um, the simple answer is in a world of competing countries, we can't. Just one more thing from me and then I'll get you to read a bit of the book if you would. A moment ago you you laid out you know quite a positive vision of what the future might be like and of course, again, not wanting to talk about what actually happens in the book, the last third of this book is set in a future America and of course that America at the moment has a man in the White House who is trying to implement this wall along the the southern border and is trying to push through travel bans to a number of Muslim countries. So are are we just in a blip at the moment, do you think? I think the way that human culture and society changes is is maybe a little bit different from the way we often imagine. We imagine that people are suddenly moved by large protests and change their minds. That does occur. But the larger way in which it occurs is that generations die and younger generations have a different way of looking at things. And so what we see at the moment is a generation in countries uh, that we might call the West, or formerly have called the West, where an older generation has an incredible degree of political power. 
But of course, it can't cling to this power because the old generation will pass. You know, young people disproportionately didn't vote for Brexit. Older people did. And uh, regardless of how it plays out, you know, the great Brexit in the sky awaits that generation, which doesn't want Britain to be part of the European Union. And of course, it awaits all of us. And similarly in America. Now, you know, for somebody in the 1850s in the United States, the idea that black people would not be slaves was preposterous in the South. Um, and then in the 1950s, 100 years later, that they wouldn't sit the back of a bus uh, or that they would share water fountains was preposterous. Uh, in the year you know, 2000, that one might be president of the United States would have been preposterous to lots of people. And yet, time passes, generations pass, and what becomes possible and not preposterous changes. And so if London is going to be significantly more like Rio de Janeiro in 100 years' time, to us, that might seem utterly preposterous and, in fact, horrible. But to our grandchildren's children, it might seem completely reasonable and, in fact, utterly desirable. And so I think we fail to see the way in which generational shifts open up possibilities that seem utterly uh, unimaginable to us. And so in, in this novel, in a way, it builds into itself a kind of generational optimism. And I think there's good reason to believe that will occur because the hum- human history is, is by and large not this history of genocides and mass murders. It, of course, is also partly that. But much more often, human history is the story of people who didn't do genocides and mass murders. You know, I have brown skin because lighter skin invaders uh, invaded the even darker skinned uh, uh, inhabitants of uh, the Indian subcontinent uh, for millennia. But there wasn't a wholesale genocide whereby only light skinned people were left. People intermixed and brown people like me resulted. And, uh, And I think that's what human history usually looks like. And so our desire to mingle, to mongrelize, to hybridize is much, much stronger than a desire to kill each other. And to the extent that we have intolerant beliefs, uh, generally speaking, the passing of generations tends to take care of it. Can I get you to read us a little bit? I'm going to read from uh, the passage where Seda Nadia passed through a door for the first time. And uh, they've found an agent in their city who will smuggle them out through one of these doors. And they're untrusting of this agent. They don't know what's going to happen, if the doors will even work. And this is what happens. The room was gloomy and the dentist's chair and tools resembled a torture station. The agent gestured with his head to the blackness of a door that had once led to a supply cabinet and said to Saith, you go first. But Saith, who had until then thought he would go first to make sure it was safe for Nadia to follow, now changed his mind, thinking it possibly more dangerous for her to remain behind while he went through and said, no, she will. The agent shrugged as though it was of no consequence to him, and Nadia, who had not considered the order of their departure until that moment, and realized there was no good option for either of them, that there were risks to each, to going first and to going second, did not argue, but approached the door, and drawing close, she was struck by its darkness, its opacity, the way that it did not reveal what was on the other side, and also did not reflect what was on this side, and so felt equally like a beginning and an end. And she turned to Saith and found him staring at her, and his face was full of worry and sorrow, and she took his hands in hers and held them tight, and then, releasing them, and without a word, she stepped through. It was said in those days that the passage was both like dying and like being born, and indeed Nadia experienced a kind of extinguishing as she entered the blackness, and a gasping struggle as she fought to exit it 
and she felt cold and bruised and damp as she lay on the floor of the room at the other side, trembling and too spent at first to stand. And she thought, while she strained to fill her lungs, that this dampness must be her own sweat. Said was emerging, and Nadia crawled forward to give him space. And as she did so, she noticed the sinks and mirrors for the first time, the tiles of the floor, the stalls behind her, all the doors of which save one were normal doors, all but the one through which she had come, and through which Said was now coming, which was black. And she understood that she was in the toilet of some public place, and she listened intently, but it was silent, the only noises emanating from her, from her breathing, and from Said, his quiet grunts like those of a man exercising or having sex. They embraced without getting to their feet, and she cradled him, for he was still weak, and when they were strong enough they rose, and she saw Said pivot back to the door, as though he wished maybe to reverse course and return through it, and she stood beside him without speaking, and he was motionless for a while. But then he strode forward, and they made their way outside, and found themselves between two low buildings, perceiving a sound like a shell held to their ears, and feeling a cold breeze on their faces, and smelling brine in the air, and they looked and saw a stretch of sand and low grey waves coming in, and it seemed miraculous, although it was not a miracle. They were merely on a beach. I've been talking to Mosin Hamid. We've been talking about his latest novel, Exit West, which is out now from Penguin. Mosin, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. John McGregor is the author of four novels and two story collections, including The Reservoir Tapes, which was recently broadcast on BBC Radio 4. He is the winner of the International Dublin Literary Award for his third novel, Even the Dogs, the Betty Trask Prize, and the Somerset Maugham Award for his first novel, If Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, and has three times been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize, most recently for his most recent book, Reservoir 13, which is the book that we're going to be talking about today. And last but not least, I should also say that that book has just recently won the 2017 Costa Award. John, welcome to Little Atoms. Describe Reservoir 13 for us. It is a novel set in the Peak District about a 13-year-old girl who goes missing while she's on holiday with her parents. But it's actually not really about her at all. It's not even really about her disappearance. It's about what happens in the village, in the community after her disappearance. And in fact, in the, in the 13 years following her disappearance. So it's about what she leaves behind rather than about her. So where did the idea for this book come from? It started with a short story that I wrote, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And the idea for that short story was from an image I'd always had in my mind from a news story of somebody, I mean, it's a fairly regular thing you see on the news, somebody disappears and, and the police start searching. And then at some point they call up some volunteers to do a kind of huge kind of fingertip search of a particular area. And I just had this image in my mind of, of a group of villagers, maybe 50, maybe 100, spread out across a hillside, kind of gradually kind of trudging across this moor, looking for whatever it was they were looking for on that occasion. And the thing that kept playing in my mind was 
if you were one of those people on that search that you'd start off with a very kind of a kind of earnest seriousness and and kind of you know real kind of commitment to what you were doing and there'd be no talking you'd just be kind of looking at the ground and, and really concentrating but to cover that much area presumably takes hours and hours and hours and at some point during those hours and hours and hours your concentration would would slip and normal conversation would would creep in and your feet would get wet and cold and you would start wondering how much longer it was going to take and you'd start worrying about having to get home to feed the cat or in some people's cases to like milk the cows and I just got really interested in this idea of everyday life intruding even when it's supposed to be a moment of kind of high drama and high seriousness and this idea that often in drama serious events serious life events can only be serious and you know if somebody's dying in hospital the family around the person dying in hospital and that's all they're doing whereas actually in real life if you are close to someone who's dying you've still got to go to the shop and buy some milk you've still got to cook dinner for each other you've still got to go to work you know life carries on and that became the kind of central idea of initially of the short story, but more importantly, when I kind of unpacked it and, and, and kind of rolled it out over the 13 year period, that became the kind of driving idea, this idea of life going on relentlessly. And the person that's gone missing, Rebecca or Becky or Bex, is she's a girl and often, especially with the real life cases in, in the media, it's often ones involving young girls that capture the imagination. And I think it's fair to say that that's carried over into, into literature as well. The idea of the missing child, particularly a girl, is a recurring idea. Why is it such a powerful one, do you think? I don't know. And I, for quite a while, I resisted writing this novel, partly because of that. And, and but I think particularly in the last 10, 15 years, there's been like a real spate of TV drama and fiction based on the missing girl, sometimes the missing woman, but usually it's a young woman or a girl. And usually there's nothing to the person who's missing. They're quite quickly found to be dead. And then it's all about their body and the kind of body is as, a, as an object. And I knew that I didn't want to do that. And I knew that I wanted to kind of steer away from that and one of my many reasons for wanting her to stay missing was to kind of keep her alive in, in a sense or to keep the possibility of her alive. I wanted her to kind of have a bit more agency and a bit more vitality than the dead white body on the table, which is what these fictions usually come down to. As for why it's so prevalent, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess the most positive way of looking at that is that it's it's a thing that we see in the news and and it's a thing that haunts most people i guess the idea that that young people young women in particular can be just taken and awful things happen and that bothers us and i guess that that it's a kind of societal itch that we're scratching in some way the worst instances is there's a kind of voyeurism it's almost a kind of sexualization of of murder in a way isn't it yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think also i mean you mentioned at the beginning that you know the book is not particularly about the missing girl and in fact i think you know it's fair enough to say it's, it's not giving too much away to say that the disappearance is never solved in the book we don't know her fate and i wonder if although you sort of explained why that's you know why that would be an interesting way to look at this were you also a bit sort of worried about doing that in terms of putting out a book that was in some way no doubt going to be marketed as a you know a crime novel to be honest i wasn't worried about it and i'm still not worried about it i know for sure that some readers have been and will be just basically disappointed that that central mystery is not 
is not resolved, is not even particularly kind of dwelt on or explored. And yeah, some people feel cheated. I mean, it's kind of as straightforward as that. There's an expectation that if you start a book with a disappearance, you owe it to the reader to tell them what has happened at the end. And I just, I just don't see it. I just don't think that's the job of storytelling or of, of fiction. I mean, there are novels which do that, and that's brilliant. And they're very well written novels. And there's a satisfaction from, as a reader, kind of being on that journey of seeing the clues, seeing the evidence, making your own judgments, finding out whether or not you were right. That's perfectly fine. But I don't see the problem with, actually, in life, there are mysteries which are not resolved. There are people who go missing, and we never find out what's happened to them. And that, you know, I wanted the book to be about that tragedy. The tragedy for the family is not that their daughter has been killed. The tragedy is that they have no idea what's happened to their daughter. And, and they never will. And that, to me, is incredibly raw and painful and worth exploring in its own right. And I don't, I just don't see that there's this kind of contract with the reader. Like, I just, I, yeah, uh, I understand some people do feel that way. And okay, you know, sorry, but um, I also don't feel bad about it. I also think what's interesting bearing that in mind that we don't find out what has happened is the narrative voice in the book. There's this omniscient narrator looking down on this village in great detail, like almost like a sort of bird's eye view. And and I say bird's eye quite particularly as we'll, we'll get to discuss a little bit later on about what else you talk about in the book. But even then, even bearing in mind that the narrative voice in this book can see everything, we get not a glimpse of Rebecca at all. There's glimpses of every now and then of like, you know, random pieces of abandoned clothing and things that tantalizingly could have something to do with the case or not. But never a glimpse of Rebecca, which almost seems like that voice is withholding this information from us. Yeah, and, and somebody um, did a reading in Sheffield last night and somebody pointed out that it's effectively an omniscient narrator who doesn't know the most important thing. And so it's not an omniscient narrator because the narrator doesn't know everything. And I think, I mean, two things. I decided very early on as the writer that it was crucial that I never decided what it is that's happened to Becky because as soon as I made that decision for myself, then I was withholding that from the reader. If I wanted it to be a mystery, but I knew full well what it was, then it does just become a bit of a game with the reader. And I, at some point, I get to do this dramatic reveal and tell everybody you know, what it was some years down the line or whatever. So whenever I found myself speculating, oh, well, maybe it was this person, or maybe it was that person, or maybe she did make it to the airport, or you know, maybe she fell in up. Whenever I came across those ideas, I, I kept my, I kind of pulled back from developing them and because I, I just wanted to be sure that I wasn't holding that from the reader. It, it remains a genuine unknown. And I think for that reason, it's not it's not actually an omniscient narrator. It's a kind of group narrative voice, which is made up of lots of constituent elements. So there are lots. It's a third person narration, which usually drops into a particular character's world for a sentence or a paragraph or half a paragraph. Um, and it kind of drops in the different people's worlds and even you know the different animals and the different locations but it's always the knowledge is always attributed so there's a lot of stuff about so and so was seen leaving somebody's house or it had been said that so and so did this thing and so there's usually a kind of attribution and so it's not really omniscient it just feels like it well i was going to say that same thing that the thing that sort of undercuts 
the idea of an omniscient narrator there, as you've just described, is that voice is often like quite gossipy in that sort of like people are seen leaving so-and-so's house or whatever. I thought that was a really interesting use of it as well. Tell me something about that idea. Well, it's, it's gossipy. It's gossipy without anyone ever actually taking ownership of the gossip. So you never get, or I think you never get, I don't know, Irene told Winnie that Gordon had left so-and-so's house or something like that. It's always passive. It's always third person. It's always this kind of, it had been said, somebody had been seen. There's no ownership to that. So there's this kind of, it's almost a kind of mini surveillance thing going on. You know, I mean, I didn't grow up in a village. I've never lived in a small village. So it's all guesswork. But I kind of imagine it's fairly inevitable that you live in a small community like that, that that is the way things are communicated. You know, people are seen. It isn't easy to hide. If something, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, or people think you shouldn't be doing, it's not that easy to hide it. Somebody will see, somebody will talk about it. Nobody will really admit to talking about it, but it, it, the word gets around. And I was just really interested in, in that as an idea and as a kind of narrative technique. And I think also it's it's important to say here as well, bringing in again the idea that Rebecca, the missing girl, and indeed her family, obviously, are all, they're outsiders. They're not from this village either. And again, I guess that's that's important in this idea that it's not really their story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was important for two reasons. That was one of the things I wanted to explore in looking at a village in the Peak District. And I suspect it's true of any kind of rural community in Britain, but I particularly noticed it in the Peak District, that there's a real kind of, juxtaposition kind of rubbing up of different social groups so you've got people who have always worked on the land you've got people who have been kind of quarry workers and stone workers you've got people who have maybe come in from outside the area maybe they work in tourism you've got people who often people can afford to buy houses in these villages and not the people who work in the villages and the people who work in the villages can't afford to buy houses in the villages. So you've got all these kind of tensions of different groups rubbing up against each other. And I thought it'd be quite interesting to have the family, the central family to whom the tragedy happens. They're outsiders and they're visitors, they're holidaymakers. So that was one side of it. But then the other side of it was this idea of a kind of secondhand tragedy. So the girl goes missing, the family, the parents stick around for a while, but eventually they go home. You know, there's no reason for them to stick around. And the villager left with this tragedy which they you know any of us if that happened in our local community we would be struck by it we would remember it we would talk about it it would make us feel sad but in that kind of weird secondhand way you know it it hasn't they didn't know this girl they're not actually their lives have not actually been turned upside down by her disappearance but they can't let go of it at the same time and and that i was really interested in that kind of secondhand sense of tragedy because i think that's the way news media encourages us to experience other people's tragedies is this kind of bring it into our houses bring it into our lives make us feel some kind of emotional response to it but actually it's not it's not part of our life you know and how do we kind of process that how do we deal with that and also that kind of hoping to provoke the reader into thinking about their experience of what their relationship is to this missing girl and and the emotions that they're feeling are also secondhand in that way so Yeah, there was quite a lot going on with that decision.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John McGregor. We're talking about his latest novel, Reservoir 13. And John, I want to talk about the structure of the novel in a couple of ways. First of all, it's set over a number of years. Each chapter is basically a year further down the line from Rebecca's disappearance. And within that year, we see various different characters within the village, then getting on with their lives, what happens to them, how things change over those years. But more specifically, what we also see is not just the people of that village, but the landscape and the nature, you know, what's going on with the birds in the trees over the course of a year, what's going on with plants and things. Tell me about that decision. Um, a lot of what writers tell you about their process and their decision making and, and the kind of the way they went about writing a book is fairly fictional and is fairly kind of, it's all hindsight, it's all kind of constructed in hindsight. So I I don't really know what my thinking process was but I know that at some point I know that quite early on I realized that I'd cornered myself into writing a novel set in the Peak District and that I knew nothing about life in the Peak District you know I've been a, it's near to, you know I live in Nottingham it's close by I go there quite often but you know I, I go there as a as a tourist and I know my way around and I can recognize a blackbird and I know the way to the pub, but I don't know what it's like to live in the Peak District, and I don't know that much about wildlife. And I knew that I had to develop a much better understanding if I was going to make this feel like a real world for the story. And I started thinking, okay, well, if you live in a village like that, what are the things that are a key part of your life? What's the landscape of not just the kind of physical sense landscape, but what's the landscape of, of your day? And so I started thinking, okay, well, there's a lot of people who work outdoors if you live in a village like that. So maybe there's a sheep farmer, there's a dairy farmer, there's a quarry worker, there's a gamekeeper, there's a guy who fixes the dry stone walls, there's conservation people, all of those. And I kind of, I, I just worked out, because the story is set across time, every chapter is a cycle of a year, and there are 13 years, I knew that I had to have lots of information, lots of text that was going to be about the passing of time. So I, for each of those jobs, I worked out what the kind of daily routines were and what the annual kind of cycle of life doing that work might be and then I just kept I kept pushing that and I thought okay well I need to know more more than blackbirds you know what are the birds that are around okay I know that swallows arrive at some point and they leave at some point so I did a lot more research into swallows and I built that up into a an annual life cycle of swallows and then I, I thought okay well, I, need, I, I need to know a lot more birds and I just I just it was this long kind of research process and the research process essentially kind of blurred into the writing process so a lot of the text that's in the book especially the text about nature is not much of an elaboration on the notes I was taking from the research I was doing and you know I, I kind of played around with the sentences a bit to make them sound just have a nicer kind of rhythm and a nicer pace but essentially they were just the factual details rather than a kind of poeticizing of, of the wildlife. How did the book itself come together then? To what extent was the the story of the characters, how did that have to be sort of dictated by that natural cycle, those natural events from the almanac of the year? Essentially, I wrote the whole book out of sequence. So when I, when I was doing all of that research for you know, different animals, different birds, different jobs, different village routines, and I was kind of writing out lists of facts, basically. I was, I was writing, I don't know, for a blackbird, I had a little passage description for every month of the year or for the well dressing i had a, a little passage of description for every stage of the process and then i put one of those stages of the process into every year of the book and i was doing that and kind of building up my kind of factual narrative and then i just did the same thing for, uh, i don't know say say the character of jackson the father who has a stroke in the first chapter of the book and then i just wrote 
another little passage of, of narrative for him for every year of the book. And I did the same thing for all of the characters and just built myself up this kind of database of text, which all had to go into particular months or particular years or particular seasons. And then basically I spent ages with almost literally with scissors and sellotape kind of sticking it together into the sequence that it ended up in. And you said you've you've never lived in a village like this, but to what extent did you... I mean, the landscape in the book is very vivid. You know, obviously it's the Peat District, there's these chain of reservoirs of the title. To what extent did you research the actual area? Where is it? Tell me something about the, the sort of place that it's based on. I mean, it's it's not a real place in the book by any means. There isn't anywhere in Derbyshire where there are 13 reservoirs. There isn't anywhere where there's a motorway on the far side of the moor. There isn't even really anywhere that's got this particular combination of big hill, rivers, grouse moor, visitor centre. It's quite a kind of jigsaw puzzle of different bits and pieces. I mean, probably most of the streets, most of the rivers, most of the bridges are from real places, but I've just kind of cherry-picked and stuck them together. Because I had... I had a really strong image in my mind from quite early on of the layout of the village and particularly of the hillside where that search first happens and this image of the reservoirs kind of stepping off into the distance. I mean, that's more of an image from the Pennines, to be honest. You get that landscape more up there. And people have been asking me, especially if I do readings anywhere near Derbyshire, people ask me, oh, is it this village? Is it that village? And I'm always keen to make sure they, they know that it's not a real place because I think the danger is, I could have just picked one village and mapped that onto the novel. But as soon as you do that, people will start saying, oh yeah, well of course I recognise the butcher, you know, I recognise the vicar, you, oh you must have met so and so, and you get into quite difficult territory. Just one more thing for me then, and then I'll, I'll get you to read a bit of the book if you would. I mentioned in the introduction the Reservoir Tapes, what were they? The Reservoir Tapes are a series of uh, 15 short stories which were commissioned by Radio 4, and they were commissioned just as I'd finished the final edits on the novel and they are essentially a prequel to the novel so they're most of the stories take place in the in the weeks and months before the girl goes missing um, and each of the stories is told from one character's point of view um, they're mostly characters from the novel there's a few new characters i got to invent from scratch but the really interesting thing for me and the really kind of challenging thing for me was that they were written for the radio and they were written to be heard by people who would almost certainly not have read the novel, but who I was hoping might then go on to read the novel. So the two things had to interact in a really delicate, interesting, complicated way. It was a really exciting project to work on and I had to write it pretty quickly. But they've now been published as a book. So the Reservoir Tapes is a book that has just been published by Fourth Estate. Well, that was a good point I asked then. So if I'll get you to read a bit. Okay, well, this is from very early on in the book. At midnight, when the year turned, there were fireworks going up from the towns beyond the valley, but they were too far off for the sound to carry and no one came out to watch. The dance at the village hall was cancelled, and although the Gladstone was full, there was no mood for celebration. Tony closed the bar at half past the hour, and everyone made their way home. Only the police stayed out in the streets, gathered around their vans or heading back into the hills. In the morning, the rain started up once again. Water coursed from the swollen peat beds quickly through the cloughs and down the step paths which fell from the edge of the moor. The river thickened with silt from the hills and plumed across the weirs. The police arranged a reconstruction, bringing actors over from Manchester. There had been no leads and they wanted to make a fresh appeal. The press were allowed up to the hunter place and given instructions on what to film. The day was clear and edged with frost. The press officer asked for quiet. The door of the barn conversion opened and a couple in their early forties appeared, followed by a thirteen-year-old girl. The woman was slim, with blonde hair cropped neatly around her ears. 
She was wearing a dark blue raincoat and tight black jeans tucked into calf-length boots. The man was tall and angular, with wiry dark hair and a pair of black framed glasses. He was wearing a charcoal grey anorak, walking trousers and black shoes. The girl looked tall for thirteen, with dark blonde hair to her shoulders and a well-acted look of irritation. She was wearing black jeans, a white hooded top, a navy body warmer and canvas shoes. The three of them got into a silver car which was parked outside the barn conversion and drove slowly down to the road. The photographers ran alongside. At the visitor centre, the actors waited for the photographers to get into place before climbing out of the car and setting off towards the moor. The girl lagged behind and three times the actors playing her parents turned and called for her to hurry up and join them. And three times the girl responded by kicking at the ground and slowing a little more. The two adult actors held hands and walked ahead and the girl quickened her pace. This sequence of events had been drawn from police interviews, it was later confirmed. The two adults kept walking until they'd gone over the first rise and dropped out of sight, and a few moments later, the girl dropped out of sight as well. The cameras photographed the empty air. The press officer thanked everyone for coming. The three actors came back down the hill. Work started up at the cement works again, and the roads were silvered with dust. The freight trains came shunting through the hill and around the long bend between the trees. A pale light moved slowly across the moor, catching in the flooded cloughs and ditches and sharpening until the clouds closed overhead. I've been talking to John McGregor. We've been talking about his latest novel, which is Reservoir 13, which is out now from Faulty State. John, thank you so much for telling me about it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.